When I served as a youth pastor in my previous location, uh, I would get together once a month with uh, a bunch of other youth pastors, and uh, we would meet in the Canton area. It was something that they would call a youth pastor fellowship. And, you know, as I've shared before, like coming into vocational ministry was almost like a second calling, if you will. Uh, I didn't grow up in the church, didn't have any of my own desire to become a pastor. And so before God called me into vocational ministry, I was a licensed massage therapist. And so these youth pastor fellowship meetings were like gold mines for me, right? Like I, I went to every single one that I could, and I was just gleaning whatever I could from these experienced guys who had been serving in youth ministry for some for years and years and decades, you know, and we would share stories and yeah, we'd have coffee and donuts, you know, in the morning as it'd be in the morning and uh, we would have fellowship with one another and we would share stories about all the boneheads that we had in our ministry. Thank you for laughing. I'm being <laughs> sort of serious. But no, we would share stories about, man, what is, what's going on in your, in your youth group and what's going on in yours and where do you see Jesus at work? And we would share stories. We would encourage one another. We would also you know, share the struggles that we're seeing in youth ministry and what, you know, where our heart just breaks for what you know, is going on there. And, you know, typically what it would look like is we would get together and, you know, people would trickle in, you know, over the first hour or so. And we would just, we would just sit around and we would talk and have these discussions. And I'll never forget one time uh, at one of these meetings, this, this idea of um, living in a post-Christian world, right? You guys know what that means. The, the, the post-Christian, we, we currently live in a post-Christian world. What that means is that for the first time in the history of America, the, the majority of the population now identify as non-Christian, post-Christian world. It's the first time in history of America that that has been the case, where the majority of the population identify as non-Christian. So th this, this youth pastor was bringing up this, you know, this idea. We were, we were talking about how to minister and the complications that arise from trying to reach youth that live in this kind of culture. And I'll never forget what he said, and I can't remember exactly, so I'm not going to be able to quote it. It's going to be a paraphrase, but he, so he basically says, isn't it a shame that we don't have some kind of manual of what it looks like to minister to people in a world that hates us? Isn't it a shame that we don't have a how-to guide on how to reach people living in darkness? Isn't it a shame that we don't have some kind of training tool to minister to people who live in a world that hates them or hates Christians? And by now, your wheels might be turning and going, well, wait a minute. Don't we, though? The reality is that the New Testament was written, the entire New Testament was written to the church that was, in a, to a world for that matter, that was non-Christian. We have that very manual right here. All of the New Testament was written to this church that was just being birthed in an area that was controlled by Rome for the most part. 
So, yes, we do. Obviously, he was being facetious with what he was saying because we, we often forget that we do have a manual. We do have a guide on what it looks like to reach people with the gospel in a hostile environment. Let us not forget that. This morning, we're going to begin a new sermon series in Philippians, as you can see, that I'm titling Citizens of Heaven. The overarching theme in Philippians is encouragement. If you were to read through Philippians, you would see Paul encouraging the Philippian church all throughout Philippians. And yes, that is the overarching theme. But I ask the question, well, why? Why so much encouragement to this, this one, in this one letter to this one people group? And as we unpack, we'll see as we go along, we're going to find that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live out their lives as heavenly citizens in a culture that hates them as believers. So hopefully by now you've had time to flip in your Bibles to Philippians. If not, I encourage you to go ahead and do so. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible, there are some in the chairs around, scattered around, so I encourage you. If you're having trouble finding it, it's just after Ephesians. And as we have our Bibles open, let us go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, we want to take a moment and just breathe. Lord, we thank you for the work you're already doing in hearts now, Lord, not just in this congregation, but all of your church here in our town and around the world, Lord. Lord, I pray that whatever distractions, whatever uh, barriers would be in the way from hearing from you this morning, Lord, that we would be aware of those and be able to surrender those by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would just lay them down so that we might come and worship you through your word. Give us ears to hear you this morning, Lord. Lord, if there be anything in my heart that would, that would taint or take away from your word or add to your word something that's not there, Lord, don't allow that. Let your word speak this morning. Lord, we come because you first called us. And so we come. And we want to worship you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're only going to study the first two verses this morning because we're going to give, uh, I'm going to be giving kind of like a little history lesson uh, in case you're not familiar with the context of Philippians. So by the time I get through all of that history and context, I only have time for those first two verses. But to help set up the context, we're actually going to read the first 11 verses verses. So I'll be reading out of uh, the English Standard Version. You can follow along. This is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's God's word. So as you can see in those first 11 verses, man, there's a, a load of encouragement to the Philippians, right? Like, I encourage you. I, I, I remember you. I thank God for you, right? And it is loaded with this overarching encouragement. So as we set the context of the, the stage as for the study of Philippians, it's important to know a few things, right? So, oh, I got to turn it on first. There we go. Maybe. Oh, it fell. Josh, can you uh, lift that up a little bit? I don't think I, the sensor fell there. All right, I might need you guys to take control back there. Anyway, uh, we need to know who the author is. Well, in the first verse, we can see the greeting. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. There we go. Author, the Apostle Paul in verse 1. We can see very clearly here that Paul is the author of this letter. We can also see that Timothy is with Paul, uh, and that Paul calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, and it's important to know why, or, you know, why doesn't he use the term apostle, right? We're going to unpack that a little bit as we go through, but it's very clear in the letter heading that uh, the author is the apostle Paul. It's also important to know, like, you know, when we write a letter, we typically sign it at the end of the letter, but tradition was during this time that they would sign it at the beginning. They would say, hey, this comes from me, you know, the Apostle Paul. In this case, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We also need to know what are Paul's circumstances as he's writing this letter? What are the recipients that he's writing to and what is their circumstances? So we're going to unpack all of that here. Well, Paul, we find, as we read through, you might have caught it, what are his circumstances? Well, he's writing from prison. We see this in verse 7, 13, 14, and 17. Right? If you look at verse 7, it says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 13 says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. It's very clear that Paul is in prison while he's writing this letter to the Philippians. And as we unpack it, you know, it, it, 
I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting in prison, it might be pretty hard for me to write such an encouraging letter, right? Now, the argument then comes, which imprisonment are we talking about? Well, there's debate about that very thing among scholars. Some people hold the camp that Paul is writing from his imprisonment in Ephesus. Some argue in Caesarea, and some argue in Rome. So which is it? Well, most likely Rome. I don't have the time this morning to unpack all of that. But traditionally speaking, most scholars traditionally have believed and come to the the understanding that Paul was most likely in his first arrest under house arrest in Rome while writing this letter and some of his other epistles. Which would date the letter sometime around 62 A.D., So that's Paul's circumstances. He's under house arrest, and he's writing this letter of encouragement, most likely in Rome. So who's he sending it to? Who are the recipients? We see this in the the first verse. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. We clearly see who the letter is intended for. It's intended to all the saints. Now, depending on your background, whether you have exposure to Catholicism, maybe you were raised Catholic or not, or you have exposure, this might be jarring to you because of the word saints. In the Catholic faith, according to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, they define saint this way. Quote, persons in heaven officially canonized or not, who lived heroically virtuous lives, offered their life for others, or were martyred for their faith, and who are worthy of imitation. When the Catholic faith talks about saints, it talks about those who have gone on into heaven, who have served their life, right? Uh, And they, anyway, we won't go there. But if that's who Paul is writing to, This letter doesn't make any sense because he's writing to dead people. Right? Right. So who is Paul writing to when he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus? Well, this word saint comes from the Greek word hagios, which is an adjective. And and I'm not much of a uh, grammar person. Uh, Amy is the grammar police when I write my newsletters. So um, I thank God for her for that because I am a terrible writer. (laughs) Uh, My grammar is not good. Um, But what I believe I remember is an adjective. An adjective is a describing word, right? An adjective describes another word. So what is this describing? Well, this, this Greek word is describing a person, specifically a saint. But this is the same word in Greek that is used in Scripture for holy. It is the same word that we translate as holy. It's the same word. Which we've defined previously, holy meaning set apart by God and for God. Right? And so... This idea that Paul is writing to the saints, he's writing to individuals who have given their life to Jesus, who God has called out of the world to himself. You, so anyone who has made a 
proclamation of faith through repentance and belief in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Now, you might not act like one. Not pointing, but I'll stare. No. (laughs) Just kidding. But the reality is, Scripture teaches that those who repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ are set apart. We are set apart from the world to God. Therefore, we are made holy by God, by Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. And therefore, we are set apart. We are saints. It's important to understand this. You don't gain sainthood by living a perfect life or living this, this life and then dying and then be gaining sainthood. Right here, right now, you are a saint, if that is true of you. You've been set apart by God and for God. So he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. What is Philippi? Where is Philippi? Well, we're going to see here that this is a map of Philippi, right? Philippi was a uh, province in the Greek area, in Greece, okay? You can see it on the map here with the star. Where does, where does Paul encounter the Philippians? Where, why is he writing this letter? Well, in order to know that, you have to actually go and read Acts chapter 16, Okay, so I'm just going to flip back to Acts 16. The setting here is that Paul is now on his second missionary journey. And in Acts 16, we see, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you're going to see that Paul is trying to go into Asia. But the Holy Spirit is saying, no, you're not to go into Asia. And he keeps trying, he keeps trying, and God keeps closing that door and says, no, you're not going into Asia. You ever, like... Try to, try to do something, and, and you think the Lord is, is, is leading you and, you, and you have this desire for a certain ministry or, or a certain cause, and God just keeps shutting that door. You must be going, like, what? Like, this is a good thing. Have you heard the saying that not all good things are God things? Just because it's good doesn't mean God is calling you to that, Right? So Paul is listening to the Holy Spirit, and and he's like, he desperately wants to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit is stopping him. We see here in Acts 16 that with Paul, it says in verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Who's writing the letter to Philippians? Paul and Timothy, right? So enter Timothy, right? Paul is on this second missionary journey, and he has Silas with him, and now comes this dude named Timothy, right? And we see that Timothy has a reputation, right? It says in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through... uh, They went on their way to cities they delivered to them for observance. So now Timothy has joined the party. We also know that uh, Timothy's father was a Greek, but his mother was Jewish. And in Jewish custom, you got your Jewishness from your mother's side, not your father's side. And so Timothy, culturally speaking, was Jewish, but he was kind of a mixed breed, if you will. 
He had a Gentile father, a Greek father, but you gain your Jewish heritage through the mother's side. So if your mother was Jewish, you gained Jewish status. That was just the culture. So here comes Timothy, and we read in Acts 16 that Timothy has a reputation. He's spoken highly of by those in Lystra and Iconium. Why is that important? Well, Paul visits Lystra and Iconium on his first missionary journey. And so as Paul's going through with Barnabas on his first missionary journey, and he comes to Lystra and Iconium, he starts hearing word about this young man named Timothy. He's like, have you, have you met Timothy yet? Man, he's a man on fire for God. You really got to meet this dude. And they never did until this point in Acts chapter 16. But that's not all that happens in Acts chapter 16. We see that not only does Timothy join the party with Paul and Silas, we also find in uh, verse 10 that the language changes to plurality. So it goes from, oh, I better not say this, third person to first person. That might be right. The language changes in verse 10 where it says, And when Paul had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. Why does the language change? Well, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke is now joined the party, right? So now you've got Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke all on this journey together. And as they travel, their travels take them to Philippi. In chapter 16, you'll read the stories of the conversion of Lydia, the seller of the purple goods, right? And that means something because that means she had some money. She was well off. Purple was a sign of wealth there. So she was a seller of purple goods. Lydia, you know the story. We also see in Acts 16, as Paul and, the, and these guys come into Philippi, there's this slave girl that is following them around going, these are servants of the Most High God. These are servants of the Most High God. Day in, day out, everywhere they went. This little slave girl. And eventually, Paul like, gets annoyed. He says, come out of her. In that minute, the, the demon leaves her, and she loses the ability to be a fortune teller. Right? And I thought, like, well, what was so bad about, like, this, this little girl following Paul and them saying, these are servants of the Most High God? That sounds like free advertisement to me. But Paul was concerned about the bondage this slave girl was in, spiritually speaking. And he frees her from that. Which then leads to the owners of this slave girl realizing they've just lost their income, and throwing Paul in this, in this group of guys into prison. They're beaten, and they're thrown into prison, unrightly, without a, without a trial, right? And while in prison, while in prison, shackled, God opens the chains. And all the prisoners are free from their bondage. The soldier in charge, the prison guard in charge, who's a Roman officer, wakes up and realizes that all the chains are loose and he freaks out. Because in that day, if you were in charge of a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, it meant your life. That was the, that was the charge. 
So this Roman officer wakes up to find that the chains are loose, and he goes, they all ran, I'm dead. And he, goes through, he gets ready to plunge himself on his sword, and Paul's like, no, wait, we're all still here. We're all still here, don't kill yourself. To which leads the Roman officer into Paul, and, and, and the Roman officer says, what must I do to be saved? And gives his life to Christ. This is the birth of the Philippi church, the church in Philippines. You got the conversion of Lydia. So you got a wealthy woman. You have a slave girl who was exercised, who was freed spiritually from, an, from a demon spirit. And you have this Roman jailer who has come to faith. And a church is born. A church is planted in Philippi. It's also important to know that Philippi was a Roman colony. And you might go, well, how is that possible? It's not even close to Italy. You're right. It's not. It was in Greece. But it was a Roman colony. And we have to, please, if you take anything away from today, let this sink in. Philippi was a Roman colony. Why does that matter? Because as a Roman colony in Greece, they, they were treated and had all of the legal benefits of Rome. They were essentially Roman citizens living in Greece. This is a big deal because it wasn't, it wasn't an everyday ordeal that non-Romans would gain Roman citizenship. They had the authority in Greece, in Philippi, to uh, name their own senates or the, the, their magistrates, if you will, to the senate, to represent Philippi. No other, no other conquered region of Roman uh, territory had that right unless they were a colony. History lesson, if you like history, Philippi was originally conquered by Philip II of Macedon, who later named it Philippi after himself. Philip II of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. It's a cool little history lesson. Philippi then gets conquered by Roman, the Romans in 168 BC, becomes a Roman province in 146 BC, and later is made a colony in 42 BC. What does it mean for Philippi, the Philippian church, the people of Philippi being Roman citizens? It means that they were counted equals to Romans legally. They were allowed their own magistrates. The law was the same for them in Philippi as if they lived in Rome. There was no different law. It was the same law, which came with the same benefits. And in case you're curious, you can actually visit Philippi today. There's ruins in Greece. This is a picture of what it, they think it might have looked like in ancient times. And you might go, well, that kind of looks Roman to me. Well, you'd be right, because Philippi was considered little Rome. It was meant to, in every way, look and feel and act just like Rome itself. Here's some current 
ruins that you can visit today if you went over to Greece, to Philippi. This is that same, to just look at this one. It kind of looks kind of flat, right? This amphitheater. This is the same amphitheater, and you can see it goes woof, way up on the sides here. This is what the ruins of Philippi look like. This is a real place. Real place. This isn't just some story. This isn't just some story made up to a people group. This was a real place and is today. John Kitchen, who was our international worker for Missions Conference, has written, written, see my grammar's bad, has written a commentary on Philippians, which I'm using to help learn a lot of this. But I'd like to quote him in his commentary about this important piece of the puzzle to, about Philippi being Roman. So I'm going to quote him here. Roman architecture began to dominate the city. Roman arches, Roman bathhouses, Roman forums, and Roman temples. Religiously, temples to gods of Greek, Phrygian, Phrygian, and Egyptian origin were known, but the, quote, imperial cult was most prominent and impressive, with altars and temples dedicated to the emperor and his family. The city's religious life centered on the worship of the emperor. Any departure from the imperial cult was viewed as seditious and unpatriotic. Any departure from the imperial cult was considered seditious and unpatriotic. This is the culture that Paul is writing to. We have to understand that that is where this church is living in as Paul's writing this letter. So what are the circumstances of the Philippians? Well, we're going to find out as we unpack that there's really two challenges or, or challenges, excuse me, on two fronts. One from without side of the church and one from within the church. Two challenges, one from outside and one from within. The first challenge from outside is clearly the opposition to Christianity. The culture itself was opposed to Christianity. Life as a Roman citizen meant loyalty to all things Rome, all things Rome, and Caesar, and mostly Caesar. Rome wasn't just a city, it was an identity. Being Roman came with a self-perception and pride. And John Kitchen puts it best, God and country were entwined in one and the same person. Elevation of anything that would compete with Caesar's level would be considered treason. This is what's going on in the church of Philippi. Which obviously and clearly presents a problem for Paul as he's writing this letter because we know that the gospel proclaims Jesus as Savior and Lord. Both titles, by the way, were strictly given to Caesar. So as the, as the church in Philippi was going out trying to make disciples, proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior was dangerous. 
They were putting their life on the line every time they would go to share the gospel because only Caesar's Lord and only Caesar is our Savior in the culture that they were at. So that was the challenge from without the church. But there was also a challenge that was arising from within the church. And we'll see this as we get into chapter 4 towards the end of the letter. Paul addresses two women by name in the letter. Specifically addresses two women causing division in the church in this letter. And we'll unpack that when we get there. But these are the circumstances of the church in Philippi. This is the culture that Paul is writing to from prison in Rome. And he's encouraging the church. So, now that we've set the stage, now that we've set the background, I turn your attention back to Philippians 1 and 2. Greeting from Paul. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This word servant literally means bond servant or slave. Now, Paul, could have, Paul could have said the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul, right? He says, no, I, this is Paul and Timothy, and we're both slaves for Christ Jesus. That's how we view ourselves. We've humbled ourselves as slaves to Christ Jesus. And he, we, we've already unpacked that he's addressing the saints, the believers in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, which is a Roman colony, and specifically addresses the overseers and the deacons. In Scripture, we have two primary offices, the overseers and the deacons. Overseers is that Greek word that we translate as elder, which we know is the high, highest level of authority in the local church that Scripture shows us and reveals to us and is also to be male only based on Scripture. So when it says overseer, he's addressing the elders of the church in Philippi. Deacons, the word deacon simply means minister. Deacons didn't have, scripturally, don't, don't have the requirement of male only. You can have female deacons because they come alongside under the authority of the elders in the church to help minister, wherever that might be. We often give, you know, to, for whatever reason, we call our female deacons deaconesses. I don't know if it just feels better that way culturally or not, but biblically speaking, how I understand the text, we don't ne necessarily have to do that, scripturally speaking. The idea of a deacon is simply one who helps minister to the needs of the church. Oftentimes, in, in my experience, we relegate our deacons to simply being those who take care of the building and the benevolent fund. What a shame that we relegate our deacons to that role only when Scripture clearly shows that they have a much higher call as deacons. So we see that he's addressing the saints, those who have found their faith in Christ Jesus. He's addressing the elders and the deacons, those offices within the church of leadership. 
And in verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word grace, we get the, from the Greek word charis, which means specifically, the definition specifically of this Greek word verbatim is grace as a gift or blessing brought to man by Jesus Christ. This is the free gift of grace that comes by Jesus. That grace is what we're talking about here. It's given freely and we don't deserve it. You know, the the difference between mercy and grace is mercy is not receiving the punishment I so justly deserve. That's mercy. Not receiving the punishment I deserve. And grace is receiving a gift I've done nothing to earn. We've done nothing to receive salvation. It's a free gift of grace from our Heavenly Father who loves us to all who would repent and believe. It's a free gift. But he doesn't stop there with grace. He says, grace to you and peace. This Greek word priest, uh, excuse me, peace comes from the Greek word irene, which isn't irony, irene. And it's the Greek, oh my gosh, the Greek the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. So when Paul says grace and peace to you, he's saying grace and shalom to you. Now you you might be like, well, that's all Greek and Hebrew to me, right? Shalom literally means, it, it means peace. Don't get me wrong. It means peace and peace be with you. But it has less to do with an internal peace that I'm feeling and more to do with a wholeness of peace that comes from a life with God, a completeness, a a soundness, a peace that only comes from being in relationship with God, right? As a youth pastor, I can't tell you how many students I had that struggled finding peace. We live in a world with this inherited sin in our lives, and without Jesus Christ, without the shalom that comes from God, we seek to fill that void with food, with drugs, with alcohol, with sex, with pornography, with fill in the blank, whatever your choice may be. But we quickly realize that every single one of those wells, every single one of those things, at one point, while they satisfied this need for peace, they run dry. They stop working. And we find no shalom in them anymore. We find no wholeness of a life at peace with God, come what may. Come what may with tremors and shakes and being sent to the hospital and having no idea what's happening. The only kind of peace you receive there is shalom that comes from God. And notice where Paul says this comes from. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Both this free gift of grace, this blessing that comes from Jesus that's freely given to all who would repent and believe, this free gift of grace and this wholeness, this peace, this, uh, this unattainable peace, both come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And Paul opens his letter to the Philippian believers who live in a hostile world where anything other than Caesar being Lord and Savior meant risking your life. And he says, grace to you and peace to you. Because Paul, even though writing from prison, he has shalom. And he's writing to people who are literally risking their lives by sharing the gospel and saying, grace and shalom to you. Paul is setting the stage to remind the Philippians that you are no longer citizens of this world. You are citizens of heaven. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for our time together this morning in your word. Lord, thank you for letting me get through it. <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, I admit, it, I don't think we understand your grace completely. I don't think we fully can grasp it. I don't think we fully can understand it. I don't think we fully live into your grace or peace for that matter. Lord, as I think about this Philippian church that, that was living in a hostile environment uh, where Caesar was in charge and all things Roman were the, the law of the land and your gospel enters in and frees the captives, proclaiming liberties and freedom in Christ, for Christ, you were calling people out of that citizenship into a new heavenly citizenship with you. Lord, help us to, as we unpack Philippians over the next several weeks or however long it takes, Lord, help us to understand that while this letter was not written to us, it was also written for us to understand and apply to our lives. Lord, we, we humbly come before you and, and understand that it is only by grace we are saved, not by works, not by anything we're able to do, that you came while we were still sinners, while we were still separate from you, and you called us out of this world into yourself by your grace for all who would repent and, and make up their mind that you alone, Jesus, are Lord and Savior. So we say thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.